Before the existence of written records, humans systematized combat. From prehistory and into the modern day, martial arts have been a part of the fabric of culture and civilization. Whether as a means of self-protection or to wage war, or to compete, or to preserve a tradition, or to touch personal greatness, these codified methods push us to ask questions, to explore, to express, to test, and to tell stories. This is Jamie Club's podcast, the official podcast of Club Chimera Martial Art, where we take the path of the vagabond warrior to find knowledge and inspiration from people, events, and ideas. If you are interested in where to follow Jamie Club and Club Chimera products and services, please wait until the end of the show. In the meantime, if you think this product is worth the price of a cup of coffee, please click on Support the Show in this episode's show notes. Explicit content and trigger warning. This episode refers to some of the most horrific crimes in modern history that some audiences may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. The Way of the Vulture, Part 1 Chapter 1 Detective Harmon 25th of September 1918 the Australian Mounted Division and Chaita's force had respectively ended the third Transjordan attack in the Jordan Valley and in Arman. Such victories were over the last few vestiges of resistance offered by the all-but-conquered Central Powers. In just four days, Bulgaria would be the first of this now-doomed coalition to sign an armistice and withdraw from the Great War. Meanwhile, Germany, the Central Powers' primary leader, was on the brink of collapse. Its impending revolution, which would see the deposition of its monarch in favour of the Weimar Republic, was only a month away. Oswald Rotter, an innkeeper and landlord, had been discharged from fighting only to return home in Hanover to not only a broken country, but to a distressed wife. A postcard had arrived from their wayward 17-year-old son, Friedel, who went by the name Fritz, saying, quote, Dear Mother, have gone away for two days but will not return until you're nice again. Love, Fritz. End quote. Friedel's mother couldn't have been nicer. In fact, philosopher Theodore Lessing put it that she was kind and too gentle, making it hard for her to cope with her son's temperament. Rather than studying for his upcoming exams, he loafed around smoking and eating sweets. He'd secretly sold his father's civilian clothes for cash and had run away the previous Saturday. Later that day, it had been reported he had been seen in the nearby forest of Anrida looking for beech nuts. With no further news, his worried parents set about looking for their boy. They immediately got their lead from Friedel's friends, 14-year-old Paul Montag, and two of his older friends, Helmut Godde and Hans Bonner. The Rotters were told of an adult the boys described as a fine gentleman and a police detective, who they, along with Friedel, had met in a cafe. This accommodating individual had played billiards with them and given them all presents, before taking each of them in the woods to solicit various sexual acts. Friedel had become a favourite of this individual and boasted that he had been back to the detective's flat where they had smoked and had fun. On one occasion, however, Friedel said that the man had turned him away from the flat when he tried to visit by shouting out, I can't open the door, I've got a lady caller. The information was of little use to the Hanover police force as Goddard and Bonner carried out an investigation of their own. 
They located the man's home at 27 Kellerstrasse and told Friedel's parents, who immediately submitted a police report. As it turned out, the police were well aware of the address and its occupant. They commissioned a plainclothes police officer by the name of Brond to raid the man's home in the middle of the night and question him in connection with the missing boy. Brond surprised the man in question who was in bed with a naked teenage boy, another friend of Friedel's. Homosexuality was illegal in Germany at the time and both individuals were led away in handcuffs. The man would receive nine months in prison. He already had quite the criminal record, beginning as a serial paedophile when he was a teenager. In 1896, he was charged with sexually assaulting young boys who had been regularly, he said it happened almost daily, luring into doorways and cellars. He was committed to a mental asylum on the 25th of March 1897. He escaped on the 13th of October that year, but was recaptured five days later at his parents' home and escaped again on Christmas Day with the help of his parents. This time he fled to Zurich in a time when passport control was not an issue and even got a job in Switzerland for a short time before he decided to return to Hanover in 1899, where his committal to the institution was apparently forgotten. At the time of the arrest in 1918, he had only just been released from a five-year stretch in prison for a spate of burglaries. The confinement saved him from being drafted into the Great War. Harmon was a known hawker on the black market, an enterprise he had thrived at during times of strict rationing and he preferred to working at his loathed father's cigar factory. However, more significant to this story, he was establishing himself as a reliable informer to a drastically overworked, overwhelmed, undereducated and underpaid Hanoverian police force. His name was Friedrich Heinrich Karl Fritz Harmon, but would acquire several labels in the years to come, such as the Butcher of Hanover, the Vampire of Hanover, and the Wolfman. He'd earned these titles after a reign of terror that would commence upon his release from prison in spring 1919. It was a reign born out of opportunism rather than careful construction. Although certainly possessing a good deal of what one might call low cunning and basic charm, Harmon was not an intelligent man. However, he would be able to use his ingratiation with the local constabulary and his experience working with the Hanover underworld to move with impunity around the local railway stations as Detective Harmon. This was more than a supercilious moniker the police had bestowed on the known thief, burglar, fencer of stolen goods and paedophile. To the later embarrassment of the entire Hanover Law Enforcement Department, Harmon technically became a private detective in 1923. For a brief period that year, he even went into business with the recently retired Border Police Commissioner Olferman. Olferman had been impressed by Harmon's tips and advice when he had first contacted the informant regarding tracing a gang of forgers. Olferman and Harmon founded the American Lasso Detective Agency and the ex-police commissioner even had identification cards made up for his partner, assuring any police officer that the holder was a member of his detective agency and was working on behalf of the Hanover Police. Even when their friendship ended that year, Harmon continued to use his card to get around the railway stations. Here dwelled the impoverished and the starving, but also the young and bored. Around this area, Harmon had built up his hawking business. The line saw individuals coming from all parts of Germany and neighbouring countries. In response to the strict rationing, all number of illegal goods were traded here. It was an ideal centre for such illicit business in Germany. Inflation had made money worthless, so trade in material goods or other services became commonplace. 
Around such unregulated and laissez-faire industry blossomed a network and culture of vice. At night, the homeless and the desperate crowded in en masse around the station. Prostitution flourished and male prostitution was a thriving business. Demonstrating their admitted lack of control of the situation, the police had only around 500 male prostitutes listed and yet they estimated there were around 400,000 individuals either providing or paying for this service. Armand would get to know these many individuals as they passed through looking for their next meal. There were many young men spat back out by the Great War that had brought their country to its knees. Harman would use these individuals along with other more seasoned members of the underworld to gather information he could feed back to the police. The honoree detective's work helped crack counterfeit rings and led to a good number of arrests. He was also looked at as a sort of counsellor for the young waifs and strays, buying the meals, sweets and cigarettes. Some of these teenagers would form part of his spy network, informing on suspected Bolsheviks, Others would be handed over to the police when they didn't show the right papers, and some would become his favourites. Several of these went missing, but who could keep track with so many simply passing through or riding trains four hours to Berlin or eight hours to Cologne? Whilst it was pretty obvious that Harman continued to make his living on the black market, mainly trading goods and meat, and enjoyed being able to profit from crime whilst receiving a good deal of protection from his own prosecution, Little did Hanover's constabulary realise the open wound they had left unattended. There was plenty of talk, gossip and genuine concern regarding what might be going on, but a type of auditory exclusion was occurring as the police desperately tried to keep some semblance of order in the city. Still, theories abound until 1924 regarding the disproportionate number of boys and young men that were regularly going missing. In 1923 alone, over 600 young males from children to young men had been officially reported missing. Then, on the 17th of May 1924, two children playing by an edge of the Lina River discovered the skull of a young man. Despite bearing knife wounds, it was dismissed by the police as having been discarded by grave robbers, another criminal activity Harmon had once been involved in. On the 28th of May, another skull of a young man was found washed up behind a mill race, not far from the earlier find. Not long after this incident, another two boys out playing also made a grisly discovery, a sack full of bones dumped in a field in a nearby village. On the 8th of June, hundreds of Hanoverian residents, fed up with the police's inactivity, took it upon themselves to search the banks of the River Lina and its surrounding area. Sure enough, they began unearthing human bones which they passed on to the police who were now forced to act. Dragging the section of the river that ran through the centre of the city, they confirmed some of the worst suspicions of those who had feared the fates of Hanover's boys, teenagers and young men. Over 500 human bones were discovered belonging to an estimated 22 different individuals. As anger and panic surged through the city, the police knew they had to act and begin listening to the various reports that circulated regarding their favourite unofficial detective who patrolled Hanover Station. When he was eventually caught and confessed, further revulsion gripped the city. Not only were there fears that Harman was something of a German real-life Sweeney Todd, whose source for his black market meat trade came from his many victims, an accusation both he and the court doctor adamantly refuted, but the way he had killed the victims assured his vampire and werewolf status contradicting the prosecution's view that all his murders were carefully planned out and premeditated harman described a feeling of going wild within the throes of lust and horseplay that would culminate in him biting his victims through their adam's apple whilst throttling them 
It was an unmitigated tragedy that the arrest of Harmon back in October 1918 did not bring immediate closure to Friedel's parents. Their son would remain a missing person until 1925. The arresting officer Bruns did not even make a proper search of 25 Kellerstrasse. So consumed was he in charging two homosexuals caught in the act. As Harmon's later testimony would confirm when he claimed to have killed between 50 and 70 people, had Bruns performed even the most basic of searches, he would have found enough evidence to prevent this prolific serial killer before he had started. Harmon would explain, quote, Back then, when we were arrested, the murdered boy's head was stuffed behind the stove, wrapped in newspaper. End quote. Chapter 2. The Opportunistic Predator Self-protection, like all methods of crime prevention and justified use of force, are based around the concept of a threat. Personal security, the soft or non-physical skill component of self-protection training, avoids, assesses, predicts and mitigates threats. Self-defence, the hard or physical skill element of self-protection, determines its methods and severity levels by the perceived level of the threat. So what is a threat? Up until recently, I defined a threat by its component parts of capability, intent and accessibility. However, the most common and universally accepted definition in security risk assessments is made up of capability, intent and opportunity. Although they are different words, both accessibility and opportunity in this context amount to a target being exposed to a threat. However, there is a specific type of criminal that is defined more by opportunity than anything else. They are the muggers who hang around tourist hotspots, the serial killers who prowl red light districts, paedophiles who lurk around online communities, cold-calling fraudsters who target the elderly, and even so-called friends who just enjoy wallowing in another's misery. The offender's motivations are extremely varied, but they're all linked by the way they take advantage of easy and often unmanufactured opportunities. In fact, when we discuss what I call the vulture offender, we're talking about disorganised malefactors. Classifying offenders under the organised or disorganised categories was the brainchild of FBI profiler Roy Hazelwood. His theory was derived from the work conducted by FBI agents John Douglas and Robert Resler. Douglas and Resler helped develop our modern understanding of serial killers by interviewing many notorious offenders. Rather than premeditate their crimes to set up situations and carefully select victims, disorganised criminals act upon impulse, and therefore the way of the vulture usually suits them. Such criminals don't put nearly as much effort as their organised counterparts to cover their tracks. However, their disorganised nature can make it difficult for law enforcement to follow a pattern to catch them. Furthermore, they often take advantage of a blind spot in society on some level that inadvertently protects them and facilitates their offences. Jack the Ripper's crimes, and the fact that his identity will probably never be revealed, is a direct symptom of late Victorian London. Whitechapel's most infamous of criminals is the archetypical disorganised serial killer. His shadow lingers over our society to this very day, and sadly is reflected in the dangers still faced by sex workers. The Ripper's victims are on the lowest rungs of society, addicted to alcohol, impoverished and relying on the meagre pennies they made from turning tricks to pay their night's lodgings. Whitechapel itself was a warren of cramped and dark alleyways, offering perfect opportunities for criminals to make their getaway, often through several residences. Despite violence, and especially violence against women being a too regular occurrence in the East End, the unique nature of these brutal crimes threw the neighbourhood into disruption. 
Adding further confusion, the crimes crossed the jurisdiction of both the Metropolitan and the City Police Forces. Likewise, the Muswell Hill murderer Dennis Nielsen and the Milwaukee cannibal Jeffrey Dahmer targeted homosexuals at a very transitional time for LGBTQ culture. The late 1970s and the 1980s would see the rise of gay clubs and bars, but strong prejudices remained in mainstream society and such preconceptions were demonstrated by the press and law enforcement. Even when the Sexual Offences Act 1967 was passed in the UK, polls indicated that many people believed same-sex attraction to be a mental illness. In fact, over in the USA, it wasn't until 1973 the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality from their list of disorders. Gay and bisexual people felt like second-class citizens, and their socialising communities were restricted to the underbelly of society, many of their members leading a double life. This didn't make the scene culturally very different from the Weimar Republic days of Fritz Harman. All three killers, Nielsen, Dahmer and Harman, were able to take advantage of the situation by picking up victims in places often overlooked by the police. We've already seen how Harman had virtual autonomy to prey upon the youth of Hanover, who hung around the underworld built up in and around the railway station. Nielsen's victims were sometimes runaways who had turned to sex work and some were young gay men and boys who often hid their sexuality from greater society. Similarly, Dharma targeted gay bars as well as malls and bus stops during a time when the AIDS epidemic had placed a new stigma on the male homosexual community. Dharma had also mainly gone for victims who were ethnic minorities and it has later been argued were often passed over by a predominantly white police force. Before Fritz Harman was eventually convicted for his crimes as a serial killer in 1924, the police seemed mainly concerned with his stealing and homosexuality. His clear penchant for paedophilia had been on his record since he was first charged for molesting several boys in 1896 and sent to a mental asylum in 1897. His time in the institution, which he had escaped, appears to have been totally overlooked in all his subsequent psychiatric reports. When Harman was arrested for seducing Friedel Rota's school friend and sentenced to nine months' imprisonment, it should be noted that the police also walked Friedel's friend away in handcuffs at the scene of the crime. It took several months for the wolf man to be convicted of assault and battery in April 1919. Between the arrest in October 1918 and the aforementioned conviction, Harman was able to return to his apartment at Kellerstrasse and completely dispose of Friedel's remains in Stockner Cemetery. During this period, yet more accusations were made against him, first for the murder of another young boy and then for several other sexual offences against children. This prompted Harmon to twice move from his accommodation, with at least one landlady having more than strong suspicions about her tenant's activities. None of these charges stuck, but Harmon still had to face time behind bars for nine months and yet another psychiatric examination concluded he wasn't mentally ill. The law didn't see Harman so much as an obvious risk to vulnerable people, but just yet another sinner who needed to be momentarily punished for his indiscretion. Ignorance creates easy opportunities for the very worst to feed on the naive, the vulnerable, the desperate and the young. In the next episode, we will delve deeper into crimes of opportunity, looking at practical self-protection solutions. We'll also look at case studies of those who survived, escaped and fought off our spotlighted vultures.
My other books, Wrong Foo and Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings, are also available through Amazon as both ebooks and paperbacks, and I'm also selling signed copies. These works are collections of rewritten and re edited essays I've produced over the last two decades. Wrong Foo is a prequel to my Bullshit Sue and the Fight to Make Martial Arts Work project, which deals with critical thinking in the history of martial arts. Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings covers the 10 years I ran Club Chimera Martial Arts as a school. Nowadays, I teach private lessons, courses and seminars. These are bespoke services that put you in charge of your martial arts journey. I teach self-protection and martial arts cross-training. You can train with me one-to-one or in a small group. I count individual clients, couple clients, parent and child clients and various other combinations. These can be taught face-to-face or virtually. I also regularly teach clubs, societies and associations nationally and internationally. Please go to clubchimera.com for details. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Owltail or whatever podcast platform you're currently using. If you could leave me a five-star rating and a review, I would be really grateful. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and at long last, TikTok. Facebook also has a members group in addition to the main business page, so please send in a request to join in with the training discussions and be a part of the wider CCMA community. I'm also uploading new content to YouTube. There are various short videos, vlogs and full video versions of some of these podcast episodes on there, as well as filming of my various lessons, so you get an idea of the different services that I provide. Please check out the services section on the YouTube channel, to find out more details on these individual services and suggestions for where you might want to take your training with me. Again, please subscribe, like, share and leave a comment. All favourable engagement on these platforms helps keep CCMA going. Now, I don't know where you listen to this show or watch or read any of the other free content I produce. My time to listen to podcasts usually occurs during dog walks or solo car journeys or when I'm undertaking some mundane task or other around my home. I watch videos when I'm in the kitchen. My reading time occurs when I'm in a waiting room or during a rest period at home. My guess is a good number of you will think nothing of buying a coffee or some other beverage when you're commuting or waiting or on your break. If you believe that the work I produce is worth the price of a coffee, then please click on support the show in this episode's show notes. Whether or not you choose to do this, my thanks to everyone who joins me on this Vagabond Warriors journey, and I look forward to sharing more travel notes with you all on the next show.